Right, okay. I'm going to start with a little personal anecdote tonight. Don't normally, but think I will tonight. Because um, it's, it's the sort of help create the effect that sort of thing I'm going to tell you now happens to me most days before breakfast, you know. Mm. And uh, a, a few years ago, I was up in Suffolk and, and there was uh, some people from a strict Baptist church and, and they had sort of like, you know, formed a new little fellowship in a village that didn't have, you know, sort of like any church in it at all. And so they started this little, you know, sort of like, you know, break away from the strict Baptist and they just asked me if I'd go and do some teaching there for a few weeks. And um, so the very first time that I, because I was going to go Sunday after Sunday, I think it was for a month, they sort of like asked me to go consecutive Sundays for a month. And, um, you know, so the first time I went along and, you know, sort of like, if you're, if, you know, most people from Suffolk, all right, who are from the strict Baptist kind of background, definitely haven't been baptised with the Spirit. And so I was praying about, you know, Lord, what should I you know, go and teach on, and it was very definitely that, I mean, no mistaking, so I went along, you know, to their Sunday fellowship and, you know, sort of like spoke about the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Fine, no problem, I spoke about the baptism with the Spirit, they didn't get baptised with the Spirit, but fine, you get used to things like that. And uh, so, so the next Sunday, you know, Lord, what is it? And it, it was the baptism with the Spirit. I just knew it had to be that again, so I went back and I spoke about the baptism with the Spirit and they didn't get baptised with the Spirit. And then the next Sunday, and I'm, you know, definitely I knew that that's, that's what it was. And after four weeks of this, you know, I mean, they were sort of coming, you know, sort of virtually saying, well, how long are you going to speak about the baptism with the Spirit? And I said, well, I'm going to keep going until you're baptised with the Spirit. And they got baptised with the Spirit. And then I could start teaching about other things. And, and of course, it illustrates the point that sometimes the Lord can be speaking and... There's, there's no point significantly moving on until that thing is in place. And certainly for them, until they were baptised with the Spirit, it really wasn't worth me trying to teach them anything else at all, because it was so fundamental. And, uh, and I think there's a case in point amongst us here. It's something that we've spoken about a lot, but tonight I'm going to be, you know, sort of just meandering, um, you know, sort of through, you know, sort of like, yet more aspects to do with prayer because this is sort of something that the Lord is speaking to us about um, and it, it, it's something that, that, that ultimately individually and as a fellowship we've got to make sure that we are cracking it however slow moving one might be from whatever little small beginnings you're going to start from nevertheless it is something that if we if we try and move on without the realisation that the Lord really is calling us to be a praying fellowship, then we're not going to see the things in the future happen that he wants to do amongst us. Now, if, if you, um, I know we finished it last week, but in fact, if you go to James, that is the place we're going to start, in fact. And, uh, you know, some verses we saw last week in, in the last study. And... And the particular burden for tonight, at any rate, or the aspect of prayer, is the thing about perseverance in prayer. That, that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. You know, the fact that when it comes to prayer, you've got to persevere, you've got to keep going. Now, in, in James chapter 5, and of course we're going to have just a quick look at the example of uh, Elijah, 
There's not going to be anything new tonight. This isn't anything we haven't covered before, but it just needs underlining. 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 And uh, James chapter 5. And uh, we'll, we'll start reading um, from the last part of, of verse 16. And James says, The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Now, the thing there about a righteous man is talking about someone who is right with God in an ongoing relationship with him. And then he goes on to say, Elijah was a man just like us. Now, you've got to put those two things together. He's quoting Elijah as an example of a righteous man. We know, of course, because we did the series, didn't we, on Elijah, that Elijah was a sinner, just like us. He was a sinner. And yet, he was righteous before God because he lived in an ongoing confession of sin. And so, you know, this thing about the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Uh, simply talking about anyone who is in an ongoing right relationship with the Lord through daily confession, repentance of sin, and living in obedience to his word. So, in effect, this can be all of us. This can be every believer on the face of the earth and it says the prayer of such a one, and this can be any of us, is powerful and effective. Now, I know that your prayer life doesn't feel like that, but that is the truth of it. That if we do embrace a prayer life in the way that we're going to be looking at tonight, then it is going to be powerful and effective. And Elijah was a man just like us, right? He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Now, we saw when we did the series on Elijah that the Lord sort of spoke to him about the fact that Israel was under God's judgment, and Elijah went to Ahab the king, and he said there's going to be a drought. Okay? And uh, you know, we, we see here that he kept praying, and, and Elijah kept that drought going for three and a half years. It's remarkable. He knew it was God's will and he kept that drought going for three and a half years because he was praying that it wouldn't rain. And then you'll remember there was the contest on Mount Carmel when he got the prophets of Baal there. And uh, they cried out to Baal, who didn't answer, but Elijah uh, prayed and God answered him by fire. And then all the prophets of Baal were put to the sword and the people kind of started to repent um, of the fact that they'd been worshipping Baal as well as the Lord. And you'll remember that um, immediately after that contest, uh, Elijah said to Ahab, he said, you know, sort of get down to where you're going because I hear the sound of the rushing of rain. Now, the point was that Elijah knew full well that once that contest on Mount Carmel was over, once the people had started to repent, he knew that then it was God's will to make it rain. And, and so, so assured is his faith that he says to Ahab, you better get going, because if you don't, the rain's, you know, your chariot's going to get clogged up in the mud because of all the rain that's coming. So the point was, that rain was as real to him as if it was raining. It wasn't, but he knew by faith it was going to, and that, that, that's the thing. Genuine faith from the Holy Spirit knows that a thing is real before it's actually happened. It's as real to you as as if it was actually happening. And yet the point is, even though Elijah knew that it was about to pour down with rain and the drought was going to be over, he went back up the mountain, he took his servant, and do you remember, he started to pray. 
he started to pray. And, and he prayed once and he sent his servant and he said, do you see anything? And his servant went and looked out to see and he said, no, there's nothing. So just bright, bright blue sky. And so Elijah kept praying. Then he sent his servants back. Do you see anything now? The servant came back and said, no, there's nothing. Just bright blue sky. And Elijah sent him back a third time. And that was when the servant said, Elijah, there's the cl a cloud the size of a man's hand. And at that point, Elijah stopped praying. And then within a few hours, it was absolutely pouring with rain. But can you see from that with Elijah that when James is talking here about he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and then like he prayed earnestly and it did rain, as it were, that that earnestly, it's not just meaning with sincerity because you could pray for something sincerely on a one-off, couldn't you? Earnest prayer is not just praying with sincerity but it's praying in an ongoing manner. In fact, it's praying, it's keeping praying until what you're praying for happens. So that's the thing there that we see about Elijah, that his earnest prayer... Now, when we talk about earnest prayer, it doesn't have to be uh, full of feelings or anything like that, but done as an act of obedience, earnest and sincere prayer must be ongoing. It's got to be persistent. And that is what we've got to underline tonight. And it's just as well we do, because obviously if people are saying, well, yes, I really do want to come to terms with prayer, I, I want to become a praying Christian, then obviously we've got to be very aware of what we're taking on. Um, you know, I mean, I'm not talking about taking two hours in prayer a day or anything like that, but the point is that we've got to take on board that it's got to be serious, it's got to be regular, it's got to be ongoing. It's no use just having little spurts here and there. It's got to be consistent and it's got to be persistent. And if, if you go now to Luke and find Luke chapter 11, want to actually home in on a couple of parables that Jesus told specifically to underline this point. All right, now, Jesus spoke a lot about prayer, and, um, and probably either next week or the week after, we're going to be looking at, at, at other aspects as well. And uh, in Luke 11, um, in fact, from, from verses 1 to 4, you've got Luke's kind of account of Jesus teaching the disciples the Lord's Prayer, um, or what we call the Lord's Prayer. And, um, and it's, it's interesting, actually, in verse 1, because it, it says, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Now, what's interesting there, that, that response, that thing that they asked him, was born of the fact that they'd seen him praying. And it, it did something to them. You know, they, they started to realize, wow, there's something here. I mean, they were men of prayer, of course they were. They were Jews, they prayed. They probably said their good night prayers before they went to bed or whatever, and good morning to the Lord when they got up. But seeing Jesus pray, they realized that there was something else here. There was a whole different ball game, and it, it got them going. But look what they say. They don't say, Lord, teach us how to pray. 
They said, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, can you see the subtle difference there? Being aware of Jesus praying made them realise that what they were into was kind of hardly worthy of the name, that there was something of a completely different order that Jesus was into, and that's what they wanted. Because, I mean, up to now, their prayer life would have just been, you know, good old Judaistic religious prayer life. But, but in Jesus, they were seeing a reality to prayer, and they wanted it for themselves. And then you get Jesus teaching them, um, you know, what we call the Lord's Prayer. But the thing that we want starts in verse 5. So let's read this, but realising that this little parable, this little picture story that Jesus is telling them, is in the context of prayer. Right. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked. My children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, Though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, or in the Greek, importunity, or perseverance, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given. Now, I'll get the tenses right here, because it's in the Greek continuous tense, literally. Ask and go on asking and it will be given to you. Seek and go on seeking, and you will find. Knock and go on knocking, and the door will be opened to you. Now, can you see that what Jesus is saying here, in the context of prayer, he says, look, just, just suppose, he says, look, Peter, just suppose that you've got a friend, all right, who lives around the corner, and then one day, uh, John turns up late at night, all right, and uh, John's hungry, he's come a long way, it's late at night, you haven't got any food. So you think, I oh, know, my mate round the corner, all right, I'll go to him and I'll, I'll borrow some stuff. So Peter goes to his mate's house, all right, only to discover that this friend isn't actually a friend at all. Tells him to naff off, basically, doesn't he? He says, I don't want you bothering me at this time of night, I'm in bed, clear off, all right? But... Because if Peter keeps going on and on and on, but I need it, I need it, I need it, the bloke will give it to him, not because he's a friend, but simply to shut him up, to get rid of him. So, in the context of prayer, Jesus there, because there, it's, it's the, the, the person in the house who's being prayed to. The one who's praying is the one asking for bread. The one being prayed to is the one who's revealing himself as not being a friend at all, alright, telling him to clear off, but eventually gives him what he wants just to shut him up. So there, Jesus, in the context of prayer, likens God to a friend who, when the chips are down, when push comes to shove, isn't actually a friend at all, doesn't want to help you, but does so only to get you off his back. So there, Jesus, in the context of prayer, likens God, the one we pray to, as a friend who isn't really a friend at all and doesn't want to be bothered, all right? Now, if you go to Luke again and chapter 18, we see another little parable here. 
Luke chapter 18. Start with verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Or in the RSV, which is usually better <laughs> for some reason, that men ought always to pray and not to faint, to grow weak and wilt. When you faint, you wilt, don't you? You can't keep going anymore. And so the context of this is that Jesus is saying this, giving them a parable to encourage them to keep going in prayer. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. So here's a judge who is an unjust judge. He's not actually concerned with justice at all. It's just a job to him. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary, which is his job after all, isn't it? For some time he refused. See, so he didn't care about God, he didn't care about men, he didn't care about the widow. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. So there, Jesus likens God to an unjust judge who dispenses, in this case, we're not talking about material need, give us our day, our daily bread, that was the first one. That was the friend who wasn't a friend. Here, we're talking about receiving justice. And we're seeing here that Jesus likens God to an unjust judge who doesn't care about justice, who doesn't care about right happening and wrong being punished, all right? This is just a judge who only cares about himself, but who acts only to get the widow off his back, because he knows that until he does, she won't shut up. So in the context of prayer, Jesus likens God, first of all, to a friend who proves he's not a friend at all, and then Jesus likens him to an unjust judge. So that in these two parables, Jesus actually likens God to the two things that he definitely isn't. Because we know that he is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. We know that he is the judge of the earth who will do right. And yet Jesus likens him to being the exact opposite to what he actually is. Now we've got to ask ourselves, why? Why does Jesus use parables in the context of prayer to make God out as being the baddie, when of course in actual fact he's the goodie. Well the main point goes back, it's this thing about persistence, and that these people got what they were praying for, what they were petitioning for, they got their request or their prayer answered because they kept on going against all the odds. And the reason I'm convinced for the two parables here and why they apply to us and what we can get from them is because if prayer is to be persistent and obviously it is because that's you know what all this is about prayer you've got to keep going on and on and on and on 
that means that certainly for a significant amount of our prayer life or prayer time, we're going to be praying for things and praying concerning situations where what we're praying for isn't happening. See? And that's why you've got to keep going. Because what you're praying for isn't happening yet. And when that happens, when you're praying on and on and on and nothing's happening, then as far as your feelings are concerned, as far as your sinful nature, your evil heart of unbelief, everything that that will put out, will be that you'll start to sort of think, well, it's as if God is an unjust judge. It's as if God is a friend who actually, now I'm really needing him, isn't helping me, he's not a friend at all. So can you see? It's because if we're going to take on prayer, we're going to take on something that has got to be persistent in the face of nothing happening. Remember Elijah, he's praying away for the rain. He knows it's going to come. I mean, he's, he's got that faith already. He knows it's going to come. But he's praying away, and each time his servant comes back and says, there is nothing. Now, that, believe me, is a very large part of what prayer is. There is nothing. Now, eventually, there came the time when the servant came back and said, oh, the clouds are coming. Then the praying could stop. The prayer was answered. But can you see, for most of the duration of anything you're praying for, you know, A, B, C, whatever it is, by definition, most of the time, what you're praying for, there's going to be nothing. And that's the point. And when that's the case, it's going to appear in the natural that God isn't concerned with justice, that he is an unjust judge. It's going to look like God is a friend who doesn't really want to help. But the reason that Jesus told these parables is that isn't true. God is just. He is a friend who wants to help. But the point was, it was their persistence that won the day. And that is what Jesus is saying. That when it comes to the prayer burdens we have on our hearts, the things that the Bible tells us to be praying for, then the order of the day is we've got to keep going in the face of seeing nothing, in the face of a continued, not even a hint of prayer being answered, we've got to keep going. Because it's only if we do that the prayer is going to be answered. So what we're seeing is that very, very often there's going to be a considerable lapse of time between the beginning of when you start praying for something and when it actually happens. Now, there are times when prayer is answered quickly. Well, in that case, that's no problem. If you start praying for something and a week later it's happened, well, you haven't got much persisting to do, have you? But when it's things where weeks, months, maybe even years and still the prayer isn't answered, then it's what we're looking at tonight that's got to kick in. These are the principles that have got to kick in, that we've got to keep going no matter what. So we've got to at least get an idea. So why is there such a long gap? You know, why is it that all prayer isn't just answered instantly? Why all this persistent stuff? Wouldn't it be easier if we didn't have to keep going on and on and on and on? Why is it? Well, obviously, you know, sort of like there's an aspect of just God's timing. You know, I mean, there are things that, that God wants for you 
and wants you to have, and at the right time, they'll come. I mean, no amount of prayer is, is going to get God to change his mind about timing or anything like that. But for the main thing that I want to home in on, go to Daniel. Daniel and chapter... Uh, chapter... Um, oh, which one is it? Chapter 8, I think. Um... No, it's not chapter 8. Where is it? I've lost it. Chapter 10. Daniel, chapter 10. Um, right, Daniel, chapter 10. Um, right, now then. Right, yeah, chapter 10, uh, start from verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. Now, what's happening here is that Elijah has started to pray for the interpretation of a vision that God has given him, all right? And he set his mind to start praying. Uh, sorry, Daniel. Who did I say? Elijah. Elijah. <laughs> Daniel. And so he's specifically praying. He's got this prayer burden, and it's lasting for three weeks, all right? Now, and if you go down to verse 10, um, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. This is an angel who has turned up. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you, and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he heard this, sorry, and when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard and I have come in response to them. So what the angel's saying is, Daniel, I am the answer to your prayer because it's a message, an interpretation, right? He's saying, I am the answer to your prayer and I was actually dispatched, I was sent out the day you started praying. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. Now, you'll remember when we did the demonology series, we, you know, we looked at this and we said, it's just a, a tiny little peek here behind the cosmic curtain. And it actually gives us a glimpse into the mechanics, if you like, of prayer. It doesn't give us enough for us to come to some full understanding, 
but it gives us a hint of what's going on. And what's happening here is quite simply this. Daniel prays. He's requesting something from the Lord, all right? And that request is led of the Holy Spirit. It's right and proper. Therefore, because he's praying according to God's will, remember in 1 John, we're given the assurance, if we pray according to our, his will, we know that he hears us. And if he hears us, we have what we ask of him. So the answer is dispatched the moment the prayer is prayed. And yet what happens is that behind the scenes, demonic interference prevents the answer from getting through. So the angel is dispatched. Now then, Daniel was praying in Persia. Right? That, that's where he was when he was praying this prayer. Now then, the demonic powers in Persia kind of were in the way preventing the angel from getting through. So therefore, the answer has been dispatched, but it's been blocked by demonic powers. But Daniel keeps on praying, doesn't he? And what happens then is that the angel is then helped by another angel who is far stronger than the demonic power that is holding that original angel back. So Michael is dispatched and he carries on battling the demons who are trying to stop the answer from getting through and the angel with the answer is then free to go to Daniel. But the process took three weeks. So can you see there that, that we're just given a glimpse of the fact that one aspect as to why prayer, the answer is so delayed and why it's so important that we keep going in prayer and don't give up is because of demonic interference. And the point was that, that, that here you've got the fact that it was through Daniel's praying that Michael, the goody angel, was able to overpower the demonic angel of Persia. So what we've got here is the fact that the power of God is released against the power of Satan through our prayers. Now obviously it doesn't have to be that way. God doesn't need anything. But he has decided that it's our prayers in certain situations that release his power. Not because God is dependent on us to that extent, God can do what he likes, but he has decided that it's our prayers that release his power in certain situations. And what that means is simply this. If we pray, God's power will be released against the enemy. If we don't pray, God's power won't be released against the enemy. And therefore, we can give up any hope of receiving what it is we want. It's our prayers that are the means of the Lord overcoming the satanic powers that hold this world, everything in it. It's our prayers that are the means of God overcoming that so that what we're praying for can be released to us. And so what we've got here is spiritual warfare. Now, spiritual warfare, I guess it takes two forms. This, you know, Paul says in Ephesians, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, 
but against principalities and powers. And elsewhere, Paul talks about, you know, the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but they're, they're mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. And, and Paul uses the picture that, that in prayer, we can actually demolish strongholds that Satan has through prayer. All right. And so what we're seeing here is that one of the aspects of spiritual warfare is prayer. The other is just day-to-day -day Christian living. Day-to-day -day Christian life. All the time, Satan is tempting us. He wants us to sin. That's, that's the first line of spiritual warfare. You know, Satan wants us to doubt. He puts doubts in our minds. All that is spiritual warfare. That's one aspect of it. We mustn't feel that spiritual warfare... I mean, a lot of Christians... They talk about, you know, we're going to get down to spiritual warfare. You know, and then they talk about prayer and fasting and stuff like that. Now, that's one aspect. But they talk about it as if that is spiritual warfare. No, the other aspect of spiritual warfare is living the Christian life day to day. Because obviously we know that if you were to really get down to prayer but weren't living the Christian life day to day, well, your prayers aren't going to be answered anyway. So it's not spiritual warfare. Because if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. You know, so to try and launch out into some big prayer life without our lives being lived in repentance day to day and obedience to the Lord will be quite counterproductive because our prayers there would not be the prayers of a righteous man, you see. And so they'd avail nothing. But assuming that we're living the Christian life day by day, then this other aspect of spiritual warfare, prayer, praying for things, coming to the Lord for things, that will release God's power against that which Satan holds. And we see from Daniel that there, there was a prayer and a time lapse of three weeks. But it can become clear from the Bible, and obviously from our own experience, that other things might take years and years and years. But the point is, we're going to keep going. You remember when... Um, Joshua was leading Israel into the Promised Land. And uh, the picture there is that they come out of Egypt, you know, like the world, Pharaoh, you know, a picture of Satan and the taskmasters who, you know, beat them with whips and, you know, sort of gave them jobs to do that were virtually impossible to do and kept them in abject slavery. That was a picture of our sinful nature and personal sins. And so when Israel came out of Egypt, that was a picture of coming out of the world being born again, so delivered there from the world. And then you remember going through the wilderness, I mean it took, it took, you know, sort of God, you know, sort of like a few days to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took him 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. In fact, he never did, they died. That whole generation died in the wilderness. And so the wilderness is a picture of God getting the world out of us, dealing with us. He gets us out of the world when we're born again. But in the wilderness, he then has to get the world out of us. Remember, Paul says that, you know, I've been crucified to the world, and the world is crucified to me. And that's a picture of the wilderness. You know, sort of, of there, of God dealing with our sinful natures, dying to self. So, you've got the world, and there you've got the flesh. But going into Canaan, there, they were going against the Canaanites. And what they did, they had this land, and God had already said it's yours, I've given it to you. He says, every, every square foot that you put your feet on, it's yours. But what he said to them also, is that you've got to drive out the Canaanites before you. So on the one hand, it belonged to them, 
But on the other hand, they had to go in and possess it. They had to go in and actually claim it. I.e., they had to drive Satan out of the situations that God was leading them into. And it was because they knew that those situations already belonged to them, so there was a new city to be conquered. They knew that God had given it to them. And because it was already theirs, they could go against it and drive the foe out of it. And you'll remember that when they came against Jericho, that was the real biggie, the problem were the walls. There was Jericho, the city, and God has said, right, that's yours. Go for it. I've given that to you. But what kept them out were the walls. The city was surrounded by the walls. And you'll remember that Israel, they, as God led them, they marched round and round for seven days, and eventually they shouted, and the walls fell down. And it was only when the walls fell down that they could go in and get what it was that God had told them was theirs. Now, can you see there, the wall represents what I tend to call Satan's holding power. The answer to their prayer was Jericho, but it was held. And can you see this idea that Jesus you know, brought out, that you bind the strong man and then plunder his goods? The goods can only be plundered when the strong man is bound. And so prayer, there, they walked round the walls of Jericho and they just kept going. And they weren't even allowed to talk to each other. They weren't even allowed to talk to each other. They had to do that in silence. And can you imagine as they walked round and round the walls, not being allowed to talk to each other? I mean, think of the things that, that went through their head. I mean, that wall would have got bigger and bigger and bigger to them. They'd have probably felt sillier and sillier and sillier. We've got this massive wall, and what am I doing? I'm walking around it in silence. You see? And all these things would have been going through their minds. But of course the point was the Lord was showing them that at the end of the day, when Jericho was taken, when the walls fell, it wasn't going to be because of anything they did, it was going to be because of him and his power, that the battle ultimately was his. And that's the thing, that that, that, that walking round the walls that is a picture of prayer. That is a picture of our prayer life. And that is why, believe me, you've just got to persevere. You've just got to keep going. Because walking around the walls of Jericho, we need these walls to fall down. So what are we going to do? We're going to walk around them. In the natural, that doesn't make the slightest bit of sense. And in the natural, praying doesn't either. It's logical. It's logical. It's quite logical. But the point is, when you're doing it, everything of the fallen nature goes against the idea of prayer, that the evil heart of unbelief asserts itself. But can you see, it was while they were walking round the walls that God was dealing with their unbelief, and that's exactly the same for us in prayer. It's through our persistence in prayer, alright, Satan's got to be bound, and that takes time, that takes time, but also, we've got to be dealt with in regards to our faith. And it's only when you pray for something, you know, I mean, okay, it's fairly, you know, you, you sort of think, you know, say a prayer burden you get, and so you start praying. And in the early days, it, you're, you know, you're looking out for the answer, and, and that's, that's okay, that's great, you're, you're full of faith. And then as time goes by, and the prayer's not being answered, nothing's happening. Now that is when unbelief rears its head. That is when you start, oh, this is never going to happen, this is pointless, blah, blah, blah. Now, it's only as the Lord brings all that out of us 
that we can actually repent of it and have it replaced by the faith of Jesus himself. That faith that, that, that sees a mountain in the way and, 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 you know, metaphorically speaking, commands it to be moved into the sea. That, you know, the faith that Elijah had when he tells Ahab to go home because of the rain when there wasn't a cloud in the sky. We only come into that kind of faith through persistent prayer as God deals with the unbelief in our hearts. And so what we've got to see in regards to prayer then is that there are three aspects of it. And it, it's always, I mean, aspect number one, that prayer is always to the Lord. Alright, so that's the first aspect, because God is the one whom we're praying to. And prayer is always for something. Obviously, we're praying in regards to a situation. You know, sort of be it something like, Lord, release the gift of healing in the fellowship, to, Lord, this area in my life where I'm in complete bondage, Lord, set me free. Alright? It's always for something, or praying for our country, Lord, let there be a real outpouring of the Holy Spirit so that many people come to know you. Prayer is always to the Lord and it's always for something. But the thing is, whatever it's for, that thing is in Satan's camp. Because Satan is the God of this world. Satan is holding that thing. He's got a wall of Jericho around it. And that wall of Jericho has got to be broken down, alright? And so therefore the third aspect of prayer is that it is against the devil. And that's spiritual warfare. So all prayer is to God, it's for something and it's against the devil. Now, I don't want you to think necessarily, because this would be silly, that therefore every time you pray for something, you've got to, as it were, break the prayer off in the bit that's to God and then come in and, and now I pray against the devil for it. Do you see what I mean? So you mustn't sort of feel that, that, I mean, there are times in prayer when it is absolutely appropriate to really pray against Satan. One just senses that. It's the right time to do it. But remember that all prayer is against Satan anyway. I mean, if I've got a prayer burden, something that I'm praying for, all right, now, I, I might not have for a few days in regards to that actually come against Satan for it. But every time I pray, I am coming against Satan for it. Can you see what I mean? You mustn't feel that the spiritual warfare aspect is only when those actual words come out. You know, so say you're praying for something, and then you stop. And then, you know, later on you may be at work or something, or you're washing up, and you think, oh! Oh, I forgot to actually bind the devil when I prayed for that. Oh, it's no good. No, that's rubbish. As you pray, Satan is being bound. You see, that's important. Otherwise, you get into the realm of magic. The idea that it's words that bind Satan. Words don't bind Satan. God binds Satan in response to our prayers. But can you see, to bear that in mind, the three aspects of prayer in that regard? And so, therefore, for us, in this fellowship, all right, I mean, what are we facing? We're facing quite a few things. I mean, we see answers to prayer, that's wonderful. And, I mean, part of our prayer is that we might grow in the knowledge of Him. You know, if you go, 
you know, sort of through Paul, you'll find that he's always saying, I pray that you'll grow in the Lord. And, and, and that's, that's a prayer that I hope we're praying for each other, and we certainly are seeing that answered, bit by bit. All right, more prayer will speed it up. But the point is that there are plenty of things yet where we've still got to keep praying. We've got to keep going. And indeed, maybe what you might call real prayer has yet to start. You know, the kind of thing that God is really trying to lead us into. I mean, the vision that we've got as a fellowship, and we have got a vision, haven't we? The Lord has shown us our future. You know, sort of like what he's going to do amongst us, that vision of the candle and other candles being lit from the candle that's here and seeing biblical churches spring up. You know, I mean, not that, not that we're anything special. The Lord's going to be doing it through churches all across the land. But the point is he's going to do it through us as well, and that's marvellous. But we've got to pray that vision into being. It's not going to happen automatically. It's the same in regards to, you know, sort of what I mentioned a few moments ago, like healing and miracles. We know what the Bible says. You know, we know that it talks about these signs shall follow them that believe, but we're not seeing it. So, in regards to that, we, we send the servant, you know, sort of like, look out to the sea. Do you see any clouds yet? And he comes back, no, there's nothing. And we've got to say, there's nothing in that department. But what are we going to do? Are we going to sort of like faint? Are we going to wilt? No, we're going to keep praying. And the thing is, the more you pray, yeah, you will certainly go, go down through like a valley in the sense that you'll sort of find that whatever it is, you know, in that department, the idea of really seeing the gifts of the Holy Spirit operating amongst us in the way that the Bible says and seeing people healed and stuff like that, that initially, the more you pray, the more ridiculous and unbelievable the whole idea will come, you know, sort of, you know, be to you. Because all the unbelief will start splurging out. But that's the idea of God keeping us waiting in prayer, in the perseverance. But you find that as that unbelief, as you can repent of that and be saying, Lord, no, your word says it. It's true. I repent of my unbelief. I repent of this thing inside of me that says, no, you're never going to see it. It's never going to happen. All right? The more that you go through that, then something far more settled happens. Not necessarily the faith to start saying, I command you to be healed all over the place. But a settled hope that you know that where it might not be happening yet, but that it's going to happen and that you've got to keep praying for it. And it's the continuing in prayer that is going to make it happen. So yeah, there's always this kind of, you know, when you really get down and start with prayer, you'll find over weeks and months but, you know, sort of rather than feeling you're closer to it, you'll feel further away. Every doubt in the world will assail you in a way it hasn't done before. But remember, the moment you start praying, Satan's going to start coming against you in a way he, he doesn't at the moment. Yeah, and you'll find when you start to pray that it becomes virtually impossible. Most incredible things, you know, will fly at you, are unbelief and distraction, but you've got to keep going and break through it all. The mere fact that that is happening is a good sign. If Satan is bothering to respond to you when you're praying, then you can know that the prayer is having effect. But at the end of the day, you've got to keep going just because the Word of God tells you that you must. Because that ultimately is what faith is. And in regards to these things, and so many other things, we've all got 
personal things in our own life. I mean, for instance, areas of our lives where we're saying, Lord, set me free from that. That's one example. Other examples, you know, by way of what you might call the desires of our hearts, things that you're praying that you want to happen. You know, Lord, bring, bring my partner along, or whatever. could be anything, but again, different examples in our own life where it's going to be prayer. But remember, it's going to look like nothing's happening. Well, that'll be because this side of the cosmic fence, you won't see anything happening. But remember, it happens as it were in the heavenlies first. And that's the thing to realise. It happens in heaven first, and then it happens down here. And that's why as we pray, and as you come to the point where you sort of like, you know, you know it's happened, even though it hasn't yet, that will bring it down, that will make it happen. I mean, we walk by faith, not by sight. But the point is, when something is as real to you as if it actually was happening now, that is when faith is starting to happen. And that is the faith that Jesus said. If we pray with that kind of faith in our hearts, then we know that it's going to happen. Because that is a God-given faith, and obviously it's only given in regards to things that actually are his will. And so we walk by faith, not by sight. The problem is that we tend to come up, well, I'll see it, I'll believe it when I see it. Whereas in the kingdom, the right way round is, if you believe it, you will see it. Now, and I'm not wanting to get into the name it, claim it thing here, you know, the blab it and grab it. It's not what we're talking about, this idea that if you confess something and really believe it, then God's got to make it. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that which is clearly God's revealed will to us. Now, obviously, they're always, you know, sort of, oh, am I really right to be expecting a wife? I, I know there are problems in that area, but the point is that, that what we're talking about is that what we're praying for, the Lord does want us to believe that he's going to answer, and he's going to impart that faith uh, to us. But it's all through this persistence, this going on and on and on, in the face of evidence totally to the opposite. So you're praying that God does something, and what your eyes see is that he's doing nothing. The truth of the matter, though, is that behind the scenes, behind the cosmic curtain, he started working on the answer to that prayer the moment you originally prayed it. And all that spiritual warfare is going on. We can't understand it, but what we can understand is this. If we stop praying, then as it were, the angels start losing. But when we pray, the angels start winning. That was literally the scene that we saw in Daniel. So, I mean, think of it like this. When it comes to praying in regards to God's will, as revealed in the Bible, then what's happening, as we continue persistently in prayer, then we're kind of energising the angels, as it were. You know, we're, we're, we're filling them up with the angelic petrol that they need. Uh, or we're providing them with the, gun, with the bullets for their guns. But if we stop praying, then they run out of ammo. 
or they run out of petrol, or whatever his angels run off. Can you see what I mean? I'm not trying to be too literal here, but that's the picture that God has given us. Now, there are lots of things where God answers prayer and the angels have probably nothing to do with it. But the point is, one way or the other, we get a peek of this cosmic battle going on behind the scenes. And that is why we've got to keep going in prayer. So, we've got to underline this, alright, in our hearts. That we've got to pray, and we've got to pray persistently. So you've got to keep at it. And when thoughts come that God's an unjust judge, or when God's a friend who doesn't want to help and he's not really a friend at all, when it looks like God isn't hearing, when it looks like God isn't answering, then that is the time to say with Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That is the time for faith to really grow in our hearts and for us to renounce the unbelief that questions God, renounce the unbelief that sort of puts more credence on what we see than what God has actually said is true. Because remember, what you see with your eyes is one reality, or it's one part of reality. There is the spiritual, the angelic, the divine reality as well. The problem is, we, we go as, as if the material is the only reality there is. It isn't. Reality includes the spiritual, and that is actually where the action is going on. Everything starts or stops there. And so we've got to become people of prayer. What we were saying a few weeks ago, we're not saying, you know, sort of like, you know, don't, don't, don't go for an hour every day or something like this. Start off with something manageable. But, but do it. And bear in mind that as we're praying, we're actually launching broadsides against the devil. And we're releasing God's power in the situations that we're praying for, be it for ourselves in our own lives or for the lives of other people and unbelievers, praying for the government. In fact, Paul says, pray for all men, not by name. That would take too long. But literally, pray for the whole world. And no, because the Bible says it, which is ultimately the only basis to know anything. Know that as you're praying, you are accomplishing, or God is accomplishing through your prayer, what he wants to do. And that is what is going to keep us going. If we believe it, we'll do it. But if we don't believe it, we won't. And so the battle of faith is really on. But think of it like this. If we really believed that we can pray and things are going to happen that have happened because we've prayed, but they're not going to happen if we don't pray, if we really believed that, would we not pray a lot more than we do? And I think the answer is absolutely yes, we would. And the great enemy of prayer is unbelief. Now we've got to knock that on the head and we have got to become persistent prayers. And when you're persisting with 10 minutes a day, a few weeks goes by, then start persisting with 15 minutes a day. But the point is, don't let go. I mean, it's been said of prayer that there's only one thing more wonderful than when God lays hold of a man. And that is when a man lays hold of God. And there's a sense in which prayer, you're, you, you've kind of got the Lord by the lapels, as it were, <laughs> metaphorically speaking. And you're saying, gimme, gimme, gimme. 
Not in an irreverent way, but that is literally the attitude that we have in prayer. It's, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Remember Jacob, when he wrestled with the Lord, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. The Lord loves that, because he's not telling the Lord what to do. He's not telling him what to do. It's expecting the best from him, and that thrills him. He wants us to believe that he wants to bless us up to the eyeballs, but so often we don't. So to really lay hold of the Lord in prayer and to pray the vision that he's given us into being. <coughs> there are areas in people's lives, character transformations needed. It's going to be prayer that is going to affect that in people's lives. It's going to be prayer that brings the power of the Holy Spirit amongst us, the gifts of the Spirit operating the way in which we're longing to see them. It's going to be prayer whereby we see people you know, who become Christians, who come to know the Lord through our testimony. It's going to be prayer. And that is what we've got to be doing. We've always believed and we've always said that Friday nights at our prayer evening, that is the generator of power in the fellowship. We've always known that. But we've got to now, yeah, that's great, but we've all got to become little generators as well. You see what I mean? In regards to our own personal lives and in regards to the fellowship as well. Because, you know, sort of like, I mean, if, 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 if we, at the moment, we come together on a Friday or Tuesday or whatever, and together we come together and we make a generator, we pray, but that's great. But can you imagine how different it would be if we all come together already as generators and then link up? Then the increase in power will be absolutely amazing. And it is going to be the prayer that releases God's power amongst us. Now, we're going to be coming back to this probably in a couple of weeks or so, maybe next week. And, uh, but for the time being, just have it underlined in your heart. Perseverance. You've got to keep going. And if you've been praying for something for 20 years and it hasn't happened yet, keep praying. Wouldn't it be tragic if you stopped praying just before it was supposed to happen? Can you see what I mean? Don't take that too literally, but can you see the point? Satan desperately wants to stop you praying. But there are things I've been praying for for 20 years. I'm not going to stop until they happen. And that, that's the way that all of us have got to be, only more so. I've got to pray more than I do. doesn't matter how far we've got in prayer, there's always further to go. But nevertheless, we, we, we've got to, to get this amongst us and, and all become men and women of prayer and to be persistent in prayer as well. Okay, we'll leave that one there for the time being.